0: She might be talking about that. (laughs) We're about to find out. (laughs) Okay, thanks. So, what I actually um, am going to do, since I didn't realize I was speaking, is pull together two presentations um, that I have. The first one is kind of an overview of how, at Integrative Medicine and also as a behavioral health scientist, we think about personalized medicine and specifically from the perspective of patients and their behaviors and their perceptions. And then time permitting, we'll go to a separate presentation. You may want to put that in your pocket or something. OK. okay. Is it so, on, though? Can you hear me? Oh, okay. No, it's just being recorded for the podcast. Oh. OK. Podcast OK. okay. Yeah. Oh, great. OK. After <laughs> <laughs> <So, laughs> what you say. Yeah, really. OK. Uh, now, how do I get that back? There we go. OK. So um, we think about it. So anyway, then time permitting, we'll get into some of the studies and the data and be happy to talk about um, the part that I think is really interesting, which is how we actually blend the genomic piece um, with the broader spectrum of, of personalized medicine. So um, I called this talk, Adding High Touch to High Tech. And our vision, which now that we have a new director, the name on the slide will, tr- will change from Tracy Gaudet to Adam Perlman. Um, but this part of our vision remains true, which is that we'd like to serve as a catalyst for changing healthcare, care, and that, of course, is part of our personalized medicine, everybody in here, um, part of our mission as well. So in conventional medicine, it's really a disease-oriented model, as you all know, and it's very focused on the body and specifically on biomedical interventions. From an integrative medicine perspective, we're really more focused on amplifying health than fixing some kind of a biomedical issue. Um, In that is improving whatever biomedical challenges there are, but amplifying health and doing it from what we call a whole person perspective. And people mean different things when they say that. So let's just talk a little bit more about the difficulties. I don't think anyone would argue that our system is the best in the world at acute care. And it is also a reactive system, right? So we wait till there's a problem, and then we respond to that problem. And it basically is set up for more sporadic care, with a few exceptions, like Dr. Joy, and um, Dr. Eisenstein and Dr. Perlman. There are people that really more work on the entire spectrum of life. But usually, the, this healthcare system as a whole is set up so that when there's a problem, then we focus on dealing with the problem. Whereas the integrative approach is more of a proactive approach, lifelong planning for your health, and amplifying what you need to to optimize your health, whether you're close to death, you've got a new acute illness, a chronic disease, et cetera. So the benefit of this model really comes into play with the whole issue of chronic disease. You know, it's no surprise to this group, of course, it's 75 to 80 percent of costs of chronic disease. Diabetes, obesity, heart disease being uh, the major three. Stroke, in addition, seventy-five to eighty percent of costs are documented to be driven by these behavior by these chronic conditions that are totally driven by behavior. There is a genetic component, absolutely. There are environmental components, huge environmental components, but behavior is the main driver of those. And from a cost perspective, that is a large a large portion of. One of two major reasons why the fiscal situation, from healthcare perspective, um, is in the crisis that it's in. Do you also look at how to modify behavior. Or Absolutely, you... that's what we're all about. Right. <laughs> Convince people to do the right. thing. Right. Exactly. So, um, the uh, you know just as you have said, the, the conventional care is is physician directed, and the individual sort of left to enact whatever changes. And the key for us is the implementation support of whatever is optimal for the patient. Now, what tends to be the biggest uh, crossroad is that we're all trained as experts, whether it's you know clinical psychology, or MDs, or PAs, or whatever your expertise. The medical model, you spend a lot of years learning so that you've got an expertise, and the patient comes to you for that expertise. So we, of course, are taught that we know what is best for the patient. And so, when a lot of people hear, well, are you going to, you know, h- how do you help them implement it? How do you help them actually change behavior? A lot of people think that means, how do I make them do what I think they should do? And that's the big issue here, because our model basically starts in a different place. So, the underlying philosophy is that humans have essential capacities for healing that can be supported and pulled out of them, also with the appropriate setting and the appropriate therapies. But they don't necessarily, it's not necessarily true that what I think they should do is what they should do. And so we're going to get into that a little bit more. But it's truly a a journey. It's not just what you do right now in response to this situation, but it's what you do to build your health over the long haul. So this is our general model, and I just want to take it apart um, because it's going to help you understand the assumptions that we work from. So right at the center of the model is that it starts with you. It starts with the patient. It starts with the patient's values and agenda and goals. And what we we learned this from our proof of concept study that was funded by CMS. Um, We published it in 2006. And basically what we did in that particular study is We took 154 patients that were at elevated risk for cardiovascular disease. It was a secondary prevention trial, randomized controlled trial. And we took them in, and we put them into groups that went on for 10 months. They were led by health coaches that we can also talk a little more about. And the the process of the group provided both education to people, but more importantly, it provided a place for them to sort out what they most cared about and then to figure out how they link their health to what that is. So that's really the key of our model. It's basically figuring out what do you care about and then how can we help you see how these behaviors that we know from our own studies and whatever are very helpful. How do we help you link those behaviors to what you care about? We learned this because we got these phenomenal outcomes and we had, um, the Wall Street Journal was doing a story and they were gathered around and the participants from the, you know, five of our star participants were there and we were all puffed up and so proud of ourselves. And the, we thought they were going to say, you know, oh, well, my cholesterol dropped X points and my blood pressure went down, you know, this and I lost 60 pounds and blah, blah, blah. And the reporter asks one of them, he asks Reggie, well, how do you know that you've done all this good stuff. And he said, you know, what are your, tell me what your markers are. And he said, I took my wife dancing for the first time in 25 years. And then they asked Didi, who has lost and maintained since that time over 100 pounds, how do you know? Dee says, I can tie my shoe, and my boyfriend's eating vegetables now. We were like, yeah, 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 but tell them about how you're off the cholesterol <laughs> meds. <You know? laughs> And so it was just this total juxtaposition to how we we thought about it. So, what we realized after doing more debriefing with the patients is you know, they don't care about the stuff we care about unless it's personally relevant to them. So, okay, your A1C goes down, great, but unless that means you get to fish with Jimmy every Sunday afternoon, you don't care. So, the stories became very important. And we realized that in order to create the connection between the story and the behavior, people needed to have a vision for health. And this was hard. First, we thought, okay, well, then we'll build this in. We'll have a 45 minute session and we'll say to somebody, okay, so just close your eyes and think of what optimally what you want for health. And, and they looked at us like we were crazy, right? Because people are not used to thinking in this way. We might have a vision and a planning for our, you know, something about our family or our education or our financial structure or whatever but thinking about a health vision is often something people either take uh, take for granted they just sort of assume it's going to be there or they take it as it comes as opposed to thinking what is my intention you know what is it that i want to be embodying so that's really the center of our model helping people get clear about that because once they're clear about that then what our coaches do and how do you do that? You That's up? another talk. <laughs> I'll tell you, actually, a couple of the key things are to start talking to them about what is most important to them. What do you really care about? You know, usually when they come in to the physician's office by according to their self-reports, they're expecting to talk about biometric parameters and i think the re- you know i think that primary care n- knows this you know for years right that the re- the more you know the patient and you're part of their life and you get that you know grandma's sick and your son's getting divorced and you really hate your job and you whatever it is the more that you engage that the stronger the relationship the more they're going to be willing to do x y or z I think the other thing that happens in this process, though, is that as, as people define for themselves what they want, number one, it's not a static thing, right? Because you might have this great plan, and you're going along, and then all sorts of things happen. Like you might be leading a case conference, for example, with 12, 12 clinicians when you get this panicked call from your assistant that says you're supposed to be giving a talk at Personalized <laughs> <and> <laughs> Medicine, just as an example. And so then you have to you know, manage whatever it is that arises in your world, of course. So there has to be, it's not a one-time hit. It really has to be a long time, you know, over time reiterating, reevaluating, et cetera. The other thing that I think is really crucial in this process is that as people plan for and make targets for specific health-related outcomes, they need to see success. So small steps over and over and over again breed success. When we first started these plans, like I guess it was about 10 years ago, you know, what happened when I first joined Actually integrated Medicine, the, they were making these beautiful plans for people, and then they had these, you know, 14-page things, and they'd go out to do them by themselves, and, you know, they weren't very successful because we're great at, like, thinking, oh, yes, and this and that and the other, but the, the how you get there is a totally different deal. And our culture totally supports this, right? Lose 40 pounds in 20 days, or your money back. You know, get in shape, like look like this. So it's, it's t- what what our marketing pushes is extremely different than do something small that you feel good about, that you then next week want to do it again, and do something else. So that's a question. No. So. Outside of you at the center is something that we call mindful awareness. Now, we have a lot of different semantic terms for this. It's basically the idea of being present for your life and starting to pay attention to what's going on inside. So our culture is extremely externalized, right? We're very reactive to lots of different um, cues from the external world. And people in this culture generally are not particularly tuned into what my thoughts are and how my, what my feelings are and how those things are driving me to behave. And so this is a huge piece of behavioral health. Because until you really understand what is leading your behavior, it truly is difficult to change it. Now that said, you can be in the bucket where you analyze it forever and you never do anything. One of my clients who's um, losing weight had seen a psychologist who had said something to her that I just thought was brilliant. The client had told the the psychologist, you know, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do that, and I don't understand why this, and then maybe there's something about my mother, and you know, who knows what. And the psychologist said, well, that's all interesting, but while you figure that out, you need to exercise more and eat less. (laughs) And so there really is a balance between, you know, Figuring things out. We don't necessarily need to know why we're stuck, but we need to know how we make decisions to drive behavior. Because it's the how, understanding the thoughts and the feelings that basically push us into a particular behavioral response, that's the key. That gives us sort of the meat, if you will, to be able to create more choices for ourselves. So we do a lot of training with people about how to get connected to your own kind of internal drivers. On the sort of more fluffy, not really, on the more unconventional side, we train people in mindfulness meditation. When I'm talking to partners at, um, you know, a, a fiscal firm that doesn't use words like meditation and runs from the room when you say them. You're just talking about awareness and asking questions about how did you make this decision and bringing basically insight into the process of decision making. Outside of this awareness, so getting, helping the person get some clarity on what they care about and how what they care about uh, informs their vision, is this mindful awareness. And then outside of that are a number of things people can do for self-care. So for example, physical activity, right? Movement, exercise, and rest. There is no drug, no vitamin, no mineral, no herb, nothing that will give you as much benefit as exercise. The studies are really quite clear about this. So some way to get people moving. And this is uh, one, of the stu- one of the stories I like that demonstrates how important it is to be connected to your values. Came from a woman who was in a um, weight loss maintenance program. So she had lost 10% of her body weight, and she entered a program with us for 18 months to try to keep that weight off. She was incredibly successful. And we know from studies that the key to maintenance of weight loss is physical activity. So we're thinking, oh, she must be exercising a lot. And in the, in the debrief interview, Karen asks her, well, you know, what can you tell me about your, your exercise program? She said, oh, I hate exercise. I don't do it. Karen said, "Really? Well, that's like the key, isn't it? How do you, you know, how do you explain that?" She said, "I don't know. It really—it makes no sense to me. But I, I, you know, I'm only doing things I really love." Further on in the interview, she gets into, "Well, what is it you do that's giving you passion and juice and makes you feel like your life is important?" And she said, "Oh, well, I care a lot about disabled kids, and I love horses. So what I've been doing." Is volunteering at a therapeutic horseback riding facility. Karen said, Well, what do you do? And she said, Well, I I hold the child on so they don't fall off while the horse runs. (laughs) 45 minutes, three times a week. (laughs) To her, it was not exercise. It was just a fast, and she loved it, and it was exciting. Fascinating for us. From a nutrition perspective, this is the second area of self care. Getting your body to optimally use all of its own strengths, thinking about how your body takes food and uses it, hugely important and one of the biggest areas to help people change. I mean, clearly, nutrition is important for many, many things, weight loss obviously being one of them. But from um, getting the body out of a pro-inflammatory state, hugely important. Relationships and communication. Also extremely important, the science behind this is hard. It's not just soft science. We have all sorts of predictors. People with um, cardiovascular disease are four times more likely to die over the course of a particular study, which I didn't review and don't remember now how many years it was. But they're four times more likely to die, I think it's about 20 years, if they are emotionally and socially isolated. Huge predictor. There are very solid methodological studies that show the importance of social support. And there's a lot of theories about the mechanisms, but there's not a lot of clarity around what the mechanisms are. We know that close relationships at every age are associated with the lower risk of dying. We know that cancer patients have longer survival rates if they're in closer relationships. And I mentioned the last one to you already. Yes, actually, hugely important. It's not that you have to have a lot of relationships. It's just that you have to feel loved and accepted, and that you are actually caring for something, some being, and it's also caring for you. So there are a lot of people, right, that will do this with a pet much more easily than a human. And there are some studies that show, you know the 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 tactile, the stroking the pet or whatever is also a hugely important part in terms of, lowering the sympathetic nervous system activity of, you know, from the stress response. Um, so that's a part of it. But there is this other part that we can't quantitate very well in terms of, of mechanisms. Can I just say, too, that yeah. maybe we can get to this oh. presentation. So, um, <laughs> It's kind of neat for me, actually, to see this. Oh, cool. So, <laughs> The, um, from the, the relationship side, we know that men with, li- men with lives. Men with wives live longer than single men. We also know that women with pets live longer than women without. This is from the data. I'm merely reporting the data. The mind-body connection appears to have a lot to do with the way that these um, mechanisms operate. And so we do teach people lots of different ways of getting their mind and body in alignment. So sort of curious. The yeah. Two examples of the converse are true. Say more. Women with husbands and men with pets. Actually, I think that might be true. But I, I, I hate to say that out loud without the studies in front of me. <laughs> Were you thinking about no. some upcoming thing? <laughs> OK, just curious. Yeah. Um, physical environment is hugely important. And physical environment is important also in terms of how it interacts with behavior. Right? So if you're struggling to stop drinking, hanging out in bars is not a good idea. right? So if you're struggling with a particular food, for example, keeping it at home is usually not a good idea. It's also not a good idea to say, I'm never going to eat that because your life is long. And so we also know that when people feel too deprived, they tend to um, react by overdoing in a particular area. So there's a, there's a fine line. But setting up your environment so that it is going to make you more able to respond to your own goals is really important. Um, we see, how many of you read um, Nudge? Anybody in here read Nudge Some of the, or Switch? You don't like these psycho books, probably. <laughs> um, it's really fascinating how the brain is set up, because they, they make this great metaphor in it that behavior is kind of like having you know a, a, the little jockey on the elephant, and the little jockey saying, go over here, go over here. And the elephant's going, oh, I'm going where I want to. There is this driver of behavior, which is lower it's you know in the limbic system, that our emotional reactivity can trump our cognitive planning easily, and that's part of why what we need to understand better for ourselves is what are those things that are going to trump it and set up our environments so that we're less likely to do that. So for example, um, what these authors call it um, your inner um, your inner Spock is like your, you know, your cortical abilities to plan and follow and you know, emotion out of it. This is what's good for me. This is what I'm going to do. And then most of us have these enormous inner Homers, which is Homer Simpson. <laughs> and that actually, until you get a handle on that, all the beautiful plans in the world are not going to be set up for success. And Adam already did this slide for us, so very helpful. <laughs> But spirituality is a, is a huge part. I do think the point was already well made. Then finally, the um, ongoing learning and being able to accomplish in your life in whatever sphere it is. If it's in the sphere of, you know, what I do is cook for my family, that's really important. That might feel like the, the personal mission of somebody, right? If what I do is run the, I don't really know what matters to you, but, you know, run the, the personalized medicine program that if that's part of your mission, that's really important. And in whatever domain that is, having an ongoing growth is key, because human beings like to move toward growth and um, self-actualization, if you excuse the psychobabble. OK, so out. let me go back to the big picture. So all of those areas are areas that people can learn and take care of themselves in with occasional professional input so the professional input now and then maybe you want to uh, get some additional mind body skills maybe you want to h- use hypnosis or learn more about meditation or visualization use a different part of your brain to imagine what you're what's out in in front of you maybe you need an update on your nutrition and as Science, nutritional science changes, you know, there, there are lots of ways you might use professionals in this array, but in terms of financial sustainability, what's important is that these things are mostly done by the individual patient or by an individual supported in a community in terms of moving them toward their goals. The blue ring outside is, at the top, prevention and intervention. And genomics, I think, comes heavily in that realm, understanding it, learning how it impacts people's behavioral choices, learning how to use it to maximize health for individuals. And at the bottom is both conventional medicine and complementary medicine. Okay, So one of the keys is doing, as I mentioned, help from a behavioral, how do you help your patients change? Having them pick very small things they can be successful at. So I'm going to um, get out of this and go to the science. What kind of things are resonating for you? OK, cool. If you just close that in and get me back to presentations, that would be helpful. Um, yes? Are, are there societies or- absolutely. I mean Eastern medicine, for example, is a very holistic uh, um, approach where you are um, it 's much more integrated now here in this culture, you know we will use modalities from it, like acupuncture for for example, but there are a whole systems Chinese medicine is a whole system, Ayurvedic medicine is a whole system, which naturally does that. I, do you want to add to that, Adam? Yeah. Which uh, presentation would you Oh, OK. Let's see. Um, let's do that one. That would be good. The, yeah. That would be good. OK. I want to, um, and let me get to where I think that part that might be interesting. Uh-oh, it's animated. It'll take. um, I want to move into health coaching just a bit because this is one of the major strategies that we're trying to use to deploy um, this particular model. So let's start with the term coaching and what it might mean in healthcare. There is truly a lack of a rigorous evidence base at this point. Um, One study that came out last year that reviewed 14 literature databases. You know the. like MEDLINE being one of 14 databases. And in that, there were only 72 studies, which both used used the word coaching anyway, and um, had some kind of health outcome, even if it were health-related quality of life. Only 34 of those studies were randomized controlled trials. And of those 34, if you really look at the methods involved, 20 of them were actually education rather than professional coaching the 12 additional 12 additional ones didn't define what they meant by coaching so it's actually unclear what has happened is because there is no official certification process that's accepted nationally and there's no licensure for it you know anybody could be a coach right your your mechanic can be a coach and so part and maybe they're a good coach i don't know But part of the challenge here, then, is when we're starting to use words, we need to make sure that we actually are clear about what that word means. So, this process has been very poorly defined. And we'll skip that. You guys all know about that. So what we've been doing as we've looked at the dissemination of this model is we've been working with concepts like stages of change, which I know you're familiar with. It's it's, uh, well built into um, the health risk assessment that Scott Joy has been putting into primary care here. It's a center of, um, or a a very significant component, both at the Diet and Fitness Center and um, at Integrative Medicine in terms of figuring out where people are. Are you guys familiar with the stages of change model? you got to do something, or I don't know. Yes or no? No, OK. So let me, So Stages of Change basically talks about how individuals approach a given behavioral change. So for example, let's take flossing. You can talk about your friend if you don't want to talk about yourself. How many of you floss every day? OK, so and how many of you floss every day and have been doing it for at least six months to a year? OK, so you guys are in what's called maintenance. you got a behavior. It's routinized. Very rare that you don't do it. How many of you floss sometimes, but not all the time? So you guys are in action. And you'll notice I'm not divulging myself where I am. (laughs) You guys are in action. So you're doing a behavior. There are ways that it can improve. But you've got some of it going on. You're at least struggling with the process of routinizing that behavior. How many of you are thinking, gosh, I really should floss. It would be so good for me. As a matter of fact, you've bought dental floss and you have it in your drawer. How many of you are in that? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a preparation phase started to accumulate what you're going to need. So let's say, for example, you're going to start um, physical activity, and that's been new for you. You might make sure you have the right shoes. You might explore what gyms you're going to go to. You're starting to line things up, but you're not actually acting the behavior yet. Then how many of you don't even have the dental floss, but you're thinking, maybe, you know, maybe at some point I really should floss? Nobody's acknowledging this. <laughs> That That would be called contemplation. That stage is like, yeah, there's benefits to it. And for many, many health behaviors, people are in contemplation because we've done such a good job of educating people about what we should be doing. Pre-contemplation is like, I am not even thinking about that, right? The guy who's got heart disease and a trach and he's smoking, not even contemplating the possibility of changing. When you're contemplating, you're actually actively kind of weighing out pros and cons. So the stages of change model is specific to a given behavior. So some of you, for example, might be in a various stage for dental flossing, but for physical activity. How many of you are exercising 30 minutes five days a week? Okay, we might have work to do. (laughs) but So you might just see whether your stage actually Matches, And you can go on and on, how much water you're drinking, how much fiber you're eating, how many fruits and vegetables you have, what's your saturated fat intake, blah, blah, blah. Okay, So it's complicated. And when we talk about what stage a person is in, the thing that I see get confused most easily is people assume that if you're in a particular stage, that says something about your behavioral approach overall. Not so. It's very specific to an individual behavior. What's great about this is it gives us lots of points of intervention, right? So as the expert, I'm thinking, boy, what you need is exercise. And I'm yammering away about exercise. And you are in pre-contemplation. It's possible that my telling you about the benefits is going to move you up more to contemplation. It's also possible I just turn you off totally and actually start to build more walls. There's some data that, that suggests that that happens in some situations. But... If I learn that, actually, you are so ready to cut back on saturated fat meats, that conversation would give us an inroad into you starting to do something which you can be successful in. And then next time you come back, we can celebrate that and look at another behavior. The challenge is when there are so many behaviors that our culture needs, we need to be addressing this not just at the individual level, but an environmental perspective. So, let me climb up on the soapbox for just a moment. You know, there's something called optimal defaults, which is how do you set the environment so it's really easy to do the right thing? Um Kelly Brownell talks about this a lot. He's a big advocate for what the food industry um, does and and doesn't do. and in um, in the Netherlands, for example, organ transplant um, signing up to be an organ donor is the optimal default. So, You will be giving your organs unless you opt out and say that you're not going to do it. 98% of people donate their organs in the Netherlands. Here, it's an opt-in, so you have to take extra effort to say you're going to donate your organs. And it's about 27% of people, the last I read, that will donate their organs. Same with um, pension plans. When pension plans are set up, In certain European countries, they were the the automatic, the default, much better saving. Now, that's kind of weird to say now, given the economy of Europe at the moment. (laughs) But comparatively to what the United States does on an individual savings basis, hugely different. So we need to have our environments so you don't have to wrestle with your inner homer at a given moment, right? Maybe there's like a treat or two and 80 good things to choose from from the buffet as opposed to one good thing or the 79 tempting things. So starting to shift our environment is a really key part of this. And I, want, I think that's important because um, it's easy to slide off in the personal accountability. People just need to step up and take charge of their lives. I also think that's true. But I think there's a lot we can do from an environmental perspective that uh, we're not necessarily doing. Patient activation. Is um, another key component of the model, which is basically how engaged are you in your health, how much self-efficacy do you have, how much confidence you have that you can carry out what you believe to be important? This is particularly true with weight loss. People know they need to lose weight, but they really don't have a clue how to do it. And so they're left to these, you know, use this incredible special supplement and take a, I heard the other day, take a vacation from food. Well, in some ways, that could be useful. You know, if you're like at an extreme, if you're at an extreme place that food's just so complicated for you. But for most people, it's too extreme, and so a small step is actually more useful. But the how and having confidence that you can do the how is um, is an area that we really work on. Um, the other research directions are specifically looking at do we change behaviors if we actually change behaviors, do we see that improve some biological indicator, right? So if, I mean, this is very parallel to the genomics work. If we find something, and then from the epigenetics piece, you know, if we even learn to alter it, to what degree is that going to shift a given biological marker? And to what degree is that biological marker shift going to impact morbidity or mortality? So in, in collecting evidence for this, in addition to collecting the cost evidence, what we're trying to do is collect data on multiple levels. Because if we know how to help people change behavior, that's useful. But if we know that changing that behavior changes a physiological marker, more important, right? And if we know that shifts morbidity or mortality, that's ultimately what we're going for provided that quality of life is sustained. So there is also a lot of data of we can do this, that, and the other, and help you live longer. You're going to feel like crap. You're not going to like your life, but you'll be living longer. That's not success from our perspective, right? We want people to have as full as possible. Yeah, how I think that that point really holds. And sometimes doctors can help. And sometimes, frankly, we're rather irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. about a whole host of other social Yeah, absolutely. I I heard a talk at um, the um, American Behavior and Cognitive Therapies um, uh, conference last weekend, and somebody was talking about one of the things you do in um, CBT, cognitive-based therapy, is you have people track their thoughts and actually look at the impact of the thought on emotion, look at the impact of a thought on a behavioral choice, look at the impact of a thought on a physiological measure. And, um, and you do this on a, what's called a thought record. And the, and the person was talking, and they said, now, and they had been uh, designing a program for the homeless population in this particular city. And they said, now, you know, the fascinating thing is, where's the homeless guy supposed to keep his thought record? You know, I mean, it's just like so, we are in such a different place. So figuring out ways to um, disseminate that will work for all different socioeconomic and social cultural situations is really important. Does this end at 10 or 10 Okay. It has been lovely. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have some well, No, it's okay. Um, I, I will, I, you know, what I can do is actually send some of the papers to Rita, and then if people are interested in reading more about it, they could, they could pick them up if they're interested in the science. Um, maybe we could just pause and take questions if there are some questions about um, behavior or questions about, you know, the interaction of, of this and, yeah. So, so Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of data that show that, you know, we do, and this is what human critters do. We do this social comparison thing, right? So you look around and you see how am I doing compared to that person. One of the challenges with that, and I am going to get back to your question, but one of the challenges with that is, you know, 100 years ago, we were in teeny tiny communities and everybody could be best at something, right? So you made the best cherry pie and you ran on the fastest and you did word problems the best. It was a small enough comparison pool but with the whole information superhighway and all the you know access to everything our comparison pools are now the entire world. So what happens is you know we want our house to look like the cover of that magazine and I need to be fit like I saw so and so, you know, and I need to have a portfolio like whoever. So we're way unrealistic and that starts to wear at self-esteem. Until what you're pointing to there are enough social comparisons that you can make that shift your norm. So there's very solid data, for example, that people that have more heavy friends are much more comfortable with their heaviness. People that and and um, and there are some cultural pockets to this as well. You know the degree to which a given body type and a body size is acceptable and therefore not um, a, a driver for behavior change. Absolutely, there are social norms that shift, and so that's part of why we have to do two things. I think one is it gets back to really shifting the environment. A number of things have to come from a, a you know sort of public health perspective. Um, the other thing is getting data to people in a way that they can understand it and make the data meaningful becomes really important. So, for example, if um, if you have no idea that this is a problem, that to you know, be at a particular weight, then it's important to understand what it might mean for you or not mean for you. And more important than that, what it might mean or not mean for you in terms of what you yourself want to do with your life. You want to be able to park your car and walk into whatever and not be out of breath. Important, right? So you start linking it with what the person cares about. Sort of getting back to the whole importance of your values, your mission, and uh, reframing the behavior change as a way that you can get what you want. Yeah? Getting to the behavior on topics. So, the f- in answer to the first question about what is driving the behavior, it's a multi-layered thing. There are huge environmental factors to it, right? If we didn't have, if the cheapest food around wasn't fast food, <laughs> If the cheapest food around was fabulous, healthy vegetables, people would eat more of them. So there is an environmental factor here for sure. If you had no choice but to park 300 yards from, well, I shouldn't say your work site because that's probably the case, but 300 yards from the store you were going to go to. So you don't think it's an internal thing? It's part. That's a, what I was just saying about environment is, is one. The second thing is an, in, is an internal thing. There is no doubt about it but it is supported by the environment. I mean, if we change the environment, but we don't help people change the way they experience the world, then um, we're not going to be successful. So you have to actually do that as well. Um, the, the third piece to that, I just went out of my head, but it was really important. Right, next year. <laughs> um, so it's the behaviors that you know activate the biophysiology that's where you get the markers. I mean, the, the challenge is sort of how do you look at it and how do you measure it. You have to do a number of behaviors for a period of time before you see changes in biology. So, but there is no doubt about the the impact of lifestyle on these markers. Now, there are some, you know, there are some very rare conditions. Like I'm not talking about acute care here. I'm really talking about the development of chronic from being in a hyper pro inflammatory state. I, I mean, that's the chronic disease kind of piece that I'm. Talking about where there's no doubt about behavior. Let's get back to your comment mm-hmm. about the overweight individuals who think their friends are and they're very comfortable with themselves. Is that a healthier person than the one who is not in an environment and they are uneasy about themselves? Right. So it's a great question. And I think it we get back to the definition, right? About what is health. You know, I personally think it's a very holistic thing. So I think that, you know, is that person better off? It, it defined by what, is the question? I don't know the answer to that, but I would suspect that if you're uh, in dissonance with your weight, that's less healthy than if you're comfortable. I, right, I would agree with you. I just want to know if there's data to it. There. Well, there is data to, to show about the impact of, of, of dissonance, um, which if the dissonance is too extreme is a really big problem. Like Sometimes we think, well, we'll just help the person see, oh my gosh, this is just awful. And that actually will make people feel like, why bother? Why try? It's just too big of a deal. But there is, um, so for example, the difference in an ideal weight versus um, a reasonable weight. Like most people, you tell them lose 5% of your body weight, would be phenomenal from a health perspective. Doesn't change their internal, like it's not going to make their vision true for them, because they're still thinking about some you know BMI that may or not even be accessible to them did did there was yeah what's what do you think is the ideal age for this type of interventions um you know I can imagine that some of these lifelong behaviors are formed in childhood totally um I can imagine also it's probably hard for a kid to have a vision of health right so what's the so when do you have that opportunity what's the right place where you're yeah. cognitively in the right place to say, um, you know, this is what I think health is, and also to be the one at, at a formative time for behavioral change. That's a great question. I think that from the depth, sort of s- defining what is health, that starts early, like, you know, three, four, five, and it has to do with norms. I think once you get, um, un, you know, once you've got a pattern of unhealthy behavior, um, the point of starting to, to intervene to change it you know, is as early as possible, truthfully. Now, people don't have the, you know, the cognitive abilities until 8 to 10 to, to start sort of more conceptualizing. I mean, I wouldn't talk to a four-year-old about your ideal vision, right? But it might talk to him about, when do they feel so good? When, do they, when are they super happy? But have you thought about, is there a family model to this approach? Well, I think that, that's the key, is yeah. you know, And when I think about that, I think about working with the parents. Right. When I think about my own five children, I think more, about Maybe they more they effective way to do the intervention is to just get everybody involved instead of like
1: one, yeah. one of the family. Yeah,
0: I think it's a beautiful idea. There was an article that came out like a week or two ago about uh, it was a weight intervention, parent-child, um, and one condition did both, intervened with both, and the other condition, randomized control, just intervened with the parent, and they actually got equal results. So, you know, I do think. So, behavior of the, the carrot or the stick, is there, a <laughs> either way? I mean, is there one better than the other? Yeah, I think that, um, and this is just my opinion, you know, there there is research to support um, both. I think that the um, carrot is better for sort of small changes in terms of shaping um, behavior. I think that the stick, like, so for example, to. Um, have somebody really tell you this is so bad, and here's the problem, blah blah blah, that would invoke shame, actually derails the whole thing. So, if the stick is an environmental shift, like um, um, I realize I could be shot for this statement, but if if um, the shift is an environmental, like you, um, perhaps it costs more to. Um, you, or you pay a bigger percentage of your healthcare costs um, if certain behaviors aren't in place. I have actually seen that in the news that, in looking at across you know, healthcare that companies are now going to the uh, if, if you have what they consider to be acceptable behavioral right. changes in health, right, and you don't change, you pay a higher premium. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And and you have to demonstrate it with the biomarker panels. I just want to make a comment to tie back to genetics for a minute. Yeah. Because um, I think I probably got like a C in my genetics. I hesitate to make any comments in here. But um, it's kind of some trial and error. Absolutely. And I would say that the epigenetic piece is really exciting to a lot of this audience. There's um, a great study by a colleague of ours, Jeff Dusick, that looked at um, oncogenes and basically found a shift in the epigenetics as a function of an eight week mindfulness practice. That, you know, so there this is where like we, we have this sort of pre pre this idea that, you know, the biology is so determined. Okay, biology is not but the genes, they're so determined. Well I think we're finding out, oh, okay, well actually no, there are things we can do to shift the expression of the genes. So that's I think where we're headed. Well, the when that will happen is a great question. I think we're at a tipping point. I mean, yes, I think we'll be successful or I would have wasted twenty years here. Right? Um, you gotta feel good, right? Yeah, right, exactly. I think we're at a huge tipping point. I think the healthcare reform um, movement, we'll see where it goes. Is, um, is really the opportunity to do a lot of this stuff. Because we, we have science now that we didn't have a decade ago. And so, but part of it is getting it out of the ivory towers and really making sure people understand it um, and, and the implications of it. Well, accountable care organizations would shift that to some degree. They will shift that. I mean, right down to, you know, we're getting new Maestro or Epic or whatever. I mean, the whole health care, the whole system from the record itself, it's all organized around chief complaint, right? Not greatest asset or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I get the sense that we have the beginnings of a movement occupy healthcare. care. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, thanks, Ruth, right. for uh, a great spontaneous Yes, session. and thank you for your patience. I have um, one announcement.